We were all excited because we hadn't seen him for five years. And we had scheduled a dinner. We were all going to get together, a group of friends. We'd been friends for a number of years growing up. And it had been five years since we had last seen one of our friends. And he was back in town. And we arrived at the restaurant. And we were all eager and excited. And then he arrived. And it was great. And, and we sat down. And, and we started just hanging out. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, I just looked at him. And I'm like, I don't recognize who this person is. I don't recognize them. He looked the exact same, but everything about him was different. And then about 10 minutes after that, I realized, I don't like this person anymore. <laughs> like, I like the memories. I like who you were, but I don't like who you are now. And people change, and, and thank God for that, right? That people change. We celebrate life change here. We celebrate the fact that God changes people's lives. Personally, I celebrate the fact that I am not the person that I was in high school. I think most of us celebrate that fact, that we are not the people we once were. That God has a way of working on us and growing us and maturing us and sanctifying us, making us more like him, that, that really changes us at the core. And this is something that we believe in and we celebrate here at Lakeside, that God changes people. And, and we love that fact that people change. But people don't always change for the better. And sometimes people change and we, we recognize this person isn't at all the person that I, that I knew and that I liked. And sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes that's really challenging, especially if you're married to that person. It gets really hard then. So what do we do with life change? And how do we, how do we navigate it? Because it's easy for us to say we celebrate life change here at Lakeside and we all applaud and we're all excited about it. And we should be because at our core, what we celebrate is redemption. And we celebrate the fact that God does change people at the core. But it's not always a clean process. And it's not always neat and tidy and super easy. And the question that we have to wrestle with as people that love and follow Jesus is how do we respond? And what do we do? That's what we're going to look at today. If you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us this morning in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can find in whatever app store you utilize. And once you've downloaded and installed the Bible app on your device, there are a number of great features within it. The feature we're going to utilize today collectively is called the event feature. And you can either enable your locations or you can type in Lakeside Community Church Algoma and it'll pop up and you can follow along with us that way as we continue our look through the early church in the book of Acts. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we're going to continue our look through the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. This morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter 9. And if you're joining us via the stream this morning, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside. And the verses will be available for you on your screen below as we continue walking through the early church. We continue to look at how God supernaturally through his spirit utilized the apostles, how he, how the Holy Spirit came and did miraculous things, how he brought with him spiritual gifts that changed things and 
that enabled the spread of the hope of Jesus and the message of the gospel of what God has done for us in our redemption to really spread across the region. And that's where we are so far in our look at the early church. And today we're going to continue that look. Where we left off was the end of Acts chapter 8. And we saw there that Philip had an encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch. And we saw how God supernaturally took Philip out of a thriving city ministry out into the middle of the desert to have an appointment with one individual because God cares about every single person. And he proclaimed to the the Ethiopian gentleman the hope of the gospel. And he was baptized, he followed Jesus, and then God carried Philip away. And that's where we left off at the end of Acts chapter 8 a couple weeks ago. Last week, we all had a great time with Sunday. Uh, my skin is still peeling as a result of me forgetting to put sunscreen on before that. And I'm super pasty. So I don't tan. I'm just either super white or red. That's just the way it goes for me. Uh, but we hope you had a, had a great time joining us for that as well last week. But we pick up in Acts chapter 9 this morning, starting in verse 1 where we read these words. But Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we we, we pause here after reading these couple verses in Acts chapter 9, and, and let's just reflect. So we're once again brought into this brought into this scene where Saul, who we were introduced to a couple chapters earlier, he is still going around hating the fact that people have made the decision to follow Jesus. He hates that fact. He hates the fact that people have dedicated their lives to Christ. We, we have seen in previous chapters that he has gone around and he approvingly was there when somebody was martyred, when somebody was stoned to death. Literally, people took stones and just continued to throw them at an individual until he died of blunt force trauma. And his crime was proclaiming the hope of Jesus. And there is a young leader, we're told, and his name is Saul, and he's approving of everything that's happening. He's approving of martyrdom. He's approving of of this capital punishment. And then we saw that it doesn't end there. But he took it upon himself to go into Jerusalem and to start chasing after families that had made the decision to follow after Jesus and to imprison these people. That's the scene of what's going on. He's leading this cause. And now he's not content just running through Jerusalem trying to find Christians. He wants to have a greater impact in his mind. So he goes to the high priest. He says, there are these reports all over the region now of people that have put their faith and their trust, that have given their lives to following after Jesus. I want to do something about it. So give me permission to go outside of Jerusalem and to do the very same thing I've been doing here. And the early Christians, they they were followers of the way. That's, That's what they were called. And what Paul wanted to do was go and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for the crime of following Jesus. 
He is the chief persecutor of the church. That is Saul. Now, as he went on his way, verse 3 says, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So he gets the permission, and he heads out to Damascus, and on his way, supernaturally, a light shines from heaven, and it's all around Saul as he is on his way to do what he thinks in his mind is the Lord's work. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he's on his way, this light envelops him and he hears a voice. And the voice has a question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response is recorded for us in verses 5 and 6. And he said, who are you, Lord? And God responds. And God said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul asked the most important question that any of us will ever ask in our entire lives. The single most important question that we all must ask and we all must answer. And if you think, I'm just not going to answer it because I'm not going to ask it, you have just answered that question. And the question is simply this, who is God? Who is God? The most important question we will ever ask and we will ever answer. And for some, the answer is me. Not me as Brian, but for some, the, the answer is me, that I'm God. And, and people might not come out and say that. I mean, some will come out and say it. But for most people, they don't actually come out and say it. It's just what they live. It's just how they conduct themselves. It's what they choose to do. That's what the message of our culture today screaming at us. Just do whatever you want. Find your own fulfillment. Make your own norms. No one can tell you anything. You must choose. It's the message of culture today. At the core of that message is you are God. You are God. This is the most important question that we will ever ask and we must ever answer and the real answer is given us is given to us here he says i am jesus and i am convinced of this if you in your mind and, and maybe you're here today and, and and you're like you know i like a lot about what jesus taught and i like a lot about what the bible says but there's just some parts i can't get past and there are some things i don't really know about and i i promise you this if you are here today and, and you're spiritually seeking and you're not really sure about it all, and you're not entirely sure where you stand on everything, here's my guarantee to you. If you will seek after God, God will reveal himself to you. And the reason I guarantee that is because God promises it. And if you will, with an open heart and an open mind, legitimately seek after God, this is the conclusion you will come to. 
I don't have to argue with you. I don't have to try to persuade. I don't have to do any of that. God will reveal himself to you. It might be supernaturally. It might be through providence. It might be another way. But here we have a God who in the midst of persecution reveals himself to the chief persecutor, Saul. And Saul says, who are you? And God's response is, I am Jesus. The very one you are persecuting. And he says, now go, enter the city, and then you will be told what you are to do. And what I find fascinating about this is this is this is how, how frequently God operates, isn't it? That God doesn't give us every single step right away. And for the control freaks and the type A's among us, that drives you nuts. Because you want every single step. But God doesn't always operate that way. God says, you're going to go to this city. And then you're going to find out more. Go and follow, and you will be told more. The men, verse 7 tells us, who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Just imagine the scene. You're out on a desert road. You all of a sudden, you hear this voice. And you don't want to be the only one that's hearing the voice. So you're kind of looking around. Like, you don't want to be like, did you just hear that? Because you're not sure they heard it yet. And there's kind of that feeling like, maybe I am crazy. Maybe I am losing my mind. But I can't let everybody in on that yet. We've got a baby step. So you're kind of looking around, and they've got the same look in their eye. So you're like, okay, safe place. I can ask them if they're hearing it too. And then if they're hearing it too, at least if we're crazy or dehydrated, we're crazy or dehydrated together, whatever it might be. But they look at each other, and they hear it. And they can't explain it either. Sometimes God works and God acts in a way that we can't easily wrap our minds around and we can't easily explain and we can't put God in a nice and neat and tidy box. We can't limit God. He's supernatural. He's all-powerful. God is not dependent to act in a way that we understand, in a way that we can fully explain. That's what we see here. There there is no explanation for this other than supernatural. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul's blinded. He's blinded. The men that were with him, they they lead him to Damascus where he was on his way to persecute people that loved and followed after Jesus. And now he can't see. And so they, they take him there. And for three days, he doesn't eat anything. And he doesn't drink anything. And he can't see. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. 
And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. God supernaturally appears to Ananias in a vision. And Ananias' response is great. It's here I am, God. That's the response we should all desire. If God calls us to do something, that should be our response. God, use me. God, here I am. How can I serve you? What can I do? This is the response of Ananias. So far, so great. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street, called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Let's just put ourselves in the position of Saul for a moment. We are ready and amped up. We are on a mission that we believe in. We are excited. We are going to go down and do some more persecution. And we can't wait. Like, this is a trip that we cannot wait to get started on. And so we go out and we rally some of our buddies with us. We're like, we're going to go torture people. Yeah, we're going to go in prison. Like, it's just, you know, it's kind of kind of like the first morning of deer season. You wake up and you're like, yeah, something's going to die today. Like, that's what they're doing. They're just, like, excited to go out there and just wreak havoc on people all right and by the way I don't really care if you kill deer whatever it's just an example there I made everybody mad all right so now they are they're on their way on their way to Damascus and then supernaturally this event happens and Saul is now blinded they take him to Damascus they hear the voice too and for three days he doesn't eat he doesn't drink and he is busy praying. You think? You think? Yeah. And then God gives him a vision as well. That God is going to send somebody to supernaturally restore his sight. And God lets Ananias in on the plan. And then we get to verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. God shows up in a vision to Ananias and tells Ananias, this is what I want you to do. And Ananias' response went from, here I am, Lord, to, no thank you. <laughs> no thanks. And what do we do when God's calling on our life, when God's plans for our life look radically different than the plans and the dreams that we form for ourselves? What do we do when we've set back and we've planned it all and we've dreamed about it all and we've invested to make it possible and we've got the plan and everything looks great? And maybe we, we get a taste. And it's even better than we dreamed it could be. 
And then all of a sudden, that call from God in our hearts, it forces us to look at things a little differently. It forces us to reconsider and to recognize that maybe retirement doesn't look at all like we thought it was going to. Or maybe my career is going to be in a totally different avenue than what I was prepared for. Or maybe I'm going to go someplace I never wanted to go and do something I never wanted to do. Because that's God's plan for my life. And what happens when God calls us to do something that isn't just a stretch, but that we think is dangerous. And there are a million good reasons why we shouldn't. But God still calls us to do it. How do we respond? Are we willing to follow through? Ananias says, I've heard about Saul. I've seen what he's done. I've, I've heard about what he's done. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias says, God, I would rather not. And God says, go anyway. Go anyway. You don't want to. You still need to go. I have other plans. Ananias, you don't see this right now, but he's the one I've chosen. You know the reason we celebrate life change? It's because God celebrates life change. Because God chose to use the one who up to this point was the chief persecutor of the church. God tells Ananias, I have other plans for him. And then notice what else God tells Ananias that we can't just brush past real quickly. Hey, Ananias, I've chosen him, and he's going to suffer. And this is the part that some of us really struggle with. The part that we don't necessarily like or enjoy about God. God, why can't you supernaturally take the suffering away? Why can't you make it so that everything done in your name is easy and it's neat and it's tidy and it's fun and it's exciting and you just remove all the challenges? Just make no mistake, he could. But he tells Ananias, I have chosen Saul, and Saul is going to do incredible things. He's going to take the gospel not just to Jews. He's going to take the gospel to Gentiles. The, the gospel is going to spread across the world. 
I've chosen him. And he's going to suffer. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. God calls Ananias. Ananias says, God, here I am. God says, go to Saul. Ananias says, no thanks. God says, no, you don't get it. Here's what I'm going to do. Ananias follows through with what God has called him to do, even though it's not something that he wanted to do. And he goes, and now Ananias is used by God in an incredibly powerful way. And we see here the transformation We see the transformation of the chief persecutor of the church. That he's had the encounter with Jesus. And he receives the hope of forgiveness and grace and redemption and restoration that Jesus offers all of us. And the Holy Spirit comes on him. And he's supernaturally healed from being supernaturally blinded. And he regains his sight. And then he rose up, and what's the first step that he does? He goes and he is baptized. Then he eats. This is transformation. And verse 19 continues. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Did you catch this? That Saul is transformed. He goes out and he's baptized. That's the first step. Sits down and eats dinner. Great idea. Especially if somebody hasn't eaten for three days and they have a history of persecuting people, you probably want to keep that person not cranky. So get them some food. And then what happens? He finds community. Ananias isn't the only person that's heard about what Saul's been up to. Ananias isn't the only one that knows about the persecution. The word is spread. Ananias certainly wasn't alone. I'm thinking, I don't know about this. He has a past. I know his story. I know what he's done. And what we see here is that the disciples, they welcome him in. Because the transformation is real. And it's no longer you're defined by what you've done 
And we're not talking you've, you made a couple little small errors. You were persecuting people. You were on your way to persecute us. But Jesus changed all that. The disciples don't view Saul by what he was. But they see Saul for now who he is. Jesus has changed him to his core. This is why we celebrate life change. It's why we say that Lakeside is a church where everyone is welcome. We all have a past. We all have made mistakes. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's standard. But if Jesus has forgiven us we can't hold on to people's past. And sometimes it's messy. And sometimes it's ugly. And sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes it's just, it's just hard. But it's what we see here. That every person, that every person deserves to be loved by others. in spite of the choices that they've made. And we will see people as God sees people. They will not be defined here by the mistakes and the sins that they've committed. That's what Saul finds. And he goes out and he immediately starts boldly proclaiming the hope of Jesus, the very one that he was persecuting people for following. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. See, people heard what Saul was saying, and they were confused. And not only were they confused, but there were critics, and there were doubters, and there were people that looked at Saul. They said, no, we know his story. We know his past. We know what he has done. We know who he is. Saul doesn't back down. He doesn't shy away. He doesn't leave. Because there is an understanding in his mind that a real encounter with Jesus changes us at the core. And when we embrace that, and when we accept it, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what the critics think. All of a sudden, you experience the freedom, maybe for the very first time in your life, of not really caring what everybody else thinks about you. 
that you recognize it's not the most important thing because there are going to be people who get it and there are going to be people who don't and there are going to be people who love you and there are going to be people that just don't like you and if you constantly live trying to impress or trying to find the acceptance of everyone else, you accomplish nothing. And you are stuck. And that's not Saul. Saul hears the criticism. He sees the critics. And maybe it's because he wanted to kill people. I don't really know. But what I do know is he's energized by it. And certainly that's the Spirit of God working through and with him. But what we see is that he just continues to go out and proclaim Christ. The disciples, in verse 20, we're told, opened up their doors. Or excuse me, in the end of verse 19, we're told, they opened up their doors and and there he was. That he stayed with them there. And then in verse 21, what we see is that people hear this and they see this and they doubt it. And the choice that each and every one of us has to make as people that love and follow Jesus, is this. What do we do with transformation? Do we celebrate it? Do we really celebrate life change? Do we really celebrate the transformation that God makes in people's lives? Or are we like the critics? That are quick to remind somebody of their past and of their mistakes and of the choices that they've made. And as people that love and follow Jesus and as people collectively as the church here at Lakeside, we have a choice to make and the choice that we must make is to say, no, we're going to celebrate life change in the same way God celebrates life change. And we're going to choose to see people who they are in Christ, not who they were before Jesus. And we, we choose to celebrate redemption. We choose to celebrate forgiveness. If you have a past, you are welcome in this place. We choose, we choose to embrace you, and we choose to do the messy work. Because there's going to be doubts, and it's going to be a struggle sometimes. But the gospel changes people at their core. And that is something that we must celebrate. God, I pray that you would help us see people for who they are in you and not who they were. I pray that a celebrating life change would be a, a core tenet of who we are here. That we would preach forgiveness and we would practice grace. 
that we would be eager to see you work and transform in people's lives and that we would celebrate that transformation. And God, sometimes it's messy and sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's ugly and I pray, especially in those situations and especially in those circumstances, you would guide us. You would help us. to see people the way that you see them, to minister to people in the way you would have us minister to them, to be faithful to what you call us to do, even when it doesn't make sense to us, even when we don't have the full picture, and even when we don't want to. Pray especially in those times we follow you. I pray that we would experience lives radically changed in this place. I pray that you would use Lakeside in this region to see people's stories radically changed, to see their eternities altered. God, we know sometimes that's going to be ugly and sometimes it's going to be messy. And we just say we're willing and we sign up for it. So guide us and help us, Jesus, we pray.